This is your Friday Daily Delivery. I am Michael Rand. As usual, a lot to get to today. Randy Johnson will join me in just a little bit from Pittsburgh. He is out there covering the Frozen Four, the men's Frozen Four. Lots of drama in that Thursday night. St. Cloud and UMass winning. Minnesota Duluth loses in overtime. Minnesota State falls victim to St. Cloud State's comeback after their comeback of their own. So it'll be a St. Cloud State UMass final on Saturday. Randy will get into that quite a bit in just a little longer here. But first, what did I miss? Let's start with the Twins home opener, should we? Um, Because I've got a lot I want to get to in a little bit, including a trade of uh, a a wild trade I'd like to see happen, even though it probably won't happen. I want to get to the Twins right off the bat, though, because home opener kind of felt like one of those games where everything fell into place, right? And it kind of has for them, by and large, this season. They're 5-2 and two now uh, in my uh, expanded standings, uh, I guess is how you'd put it, uh, the way I like to see the standings done this year based on the weird extra innings rule still in effect. They're 5-0-2 oh, since they've yet to lose yet here in regulation, only lost those two games where they put the runner on second. That's not the point here today, though. The point is 10-2 to over Seattle in the opener. Jose Barrios pitches well, gets a standing ovation from the roughly 10,000 fans as he walks off the field. Love to see that. Um, Byron Buxton keeps doing what he does. We're going to hear from Roy Smalley here in a little bit, a few uh, a few opinions of, of Roy and, and why Byron is able to put it together this year. Buxton has another long home run and a double. Um, so the offense was clicking. Mitch Garver, three-run homer. Um, Luis Arias goes deep, uses a, you know, Nelson Cruz gives him all the power. Nelson Cruz legs out another infield hit. Love to see that. So just everything seems like it was clicking for them in that game. Again, you know, not drawing too many conclusions, but you can see the makings of a pretty good team here, right? Um, you know, a team where, kind of like Phil Miller and I talked about the other day, you don't necessarily have one exceptional thing. The offense, I think, was exceptional on Thursday. Um, they got some good defensive plays. They good, got good starting pitching. A team, though, that does almost everything well and therefore will have a game like this where they just flat out, you know, crush a team when everything clicks. Or, you know, they can have a game kind of like the one they had on Wednesday where, yeah, the offense wasn't that great, but they got enough timely hitting. The starting pitching was pretty good, but, you know, they needed Maeda to work out of some jams. The defense had to bail them out a little bit there, and the bullpen was really good. So if you have more than one thing that you do well, if you do almost everything well, if more of those than not click in a given day, you're probably still going to win. You're going to win. You're going to be in a game at least. And I think that's kind of how the Twins are built this year. But, you know, sometimes, like I said, they're going to put it all together and, you know, they're just going to crush an opponent. And they did that on Thursday, got that game in, short little rain delay. Now they get an off day Friday where it looks like it's going to rain here today. So kind of the the weather um, smiling on them, at least to a certain degree, to be able to get that game in, to play really well, have the fans in the stands. And that was a big deal. You know, just even the, the, the ovation, like I referenced, of, you know, Barrios coming off the mound, just something like that where we hadn't had that for a long time. And it's just, you know, just to see that happen, it was kind of cool. It was, it was a weird thing that I was just kind of like, oh, man, I missed that. Like, you just, you that happens like 162, maybe not 162, you know, for... 81 target field home games that happens quite a bit 
at least in the course of a regular season where the starting pitcher gets an ovation when he gets lifted, especially in the middle of a game. So, you know, he, he pitches almost six innings, effective innings, and then gets taken out and then he gets that nice ovation. And you're just like, okay, this is the difference. This is, you know, this is the difference. This is what we were missing last season. And hopefully we start to see even more fans in the stands as the vaccine rollout continues on and people continue to get it and it becomes safer and safer and safer to go to a baseball game. But I don't think they could have scripted it much better um, than it it went on on Thursday to be able to play that game, to be able to have it, the outcome it was. And now the Twins, you know, 5-0-2. I'm going to keep the standings up as long as we can this season because I think it's funny and I think it's also relevant because I don't like the way these extra innings are run. Before that game, I hosted a uh, roundtable discussion with Megan Ryan, our new Twins beat writer, Lavelle Enil III, a columnist who covered the Twins for a long time, and Roy Smalley from Bally Sports North. And you can find that. Um, there's a link to the to the replay of that. You have to register to watch it, but uh, there's a link to that that you can find. Um, I want, to promote that, I want to play a little clip um, of a question I asked Roy Smalley during that about Buxton and just kind of, you know, how a player can figure something out. Because, you know, Royce Smalley played the game. His power didn't really emerge until a few years into his career. Um, not the same kind of player as Byron Buxton, obviously, but a very good major league player in his own right and someone who knows hitting very well. So here was Royce Smalley talking about how Byron Buxton is able to put everything together so far this season. As someone who played the game, such as yourself, um, and, and maybe it took you a few years to put it all together yourself. What What's that process like? And, and what are you seeing from Byron Buxton so far this season? You know, it's uh, interesting. Generally speaking, for most young guys, young players, when they come in, it takes 1,200 bats to, I don't know, 1,500 bats, something like that, before they figure out who they are, before they figure out what their mechanics needs to be, their hitting mechanics, but also how you figure out what pitchers are trying to do to you, what pitches you hit best, how to lay off stuff you don't hit well. I mean, it it just, it takes some time for almost everybody. There are some exceptions. Mike Trout didn't seem to need, uh, you know, 1,200 bats. He needed about 12. But uh, for most guys, it takes about that long. And that's about where Byron is now. He's got uh, a world of talent. He's got tremendous bat speed naturally as good quick as nearly anybody's and he's made himself stronger this year over the over the winter I think the last piece of it is just mentally now uh, uh, feeling confident in what he's doing and it seems that he is that way too I think right now and all of us hitters you love these streaks when you you think that there's nobody's got anything can get you out and that's kind of the way Byron feels right now but I don't think you can overstate how important it is when I was thinking about, as I've been thinking about the first six games of the season, the real uh, encouraging, the two most significant things has been the fact that Nelson Cruz at 41 years old has broken from the gate, swinging the bat really well. And Byron Buxton, who could be, who could, this could become Byron's t- team just about any time. Looks like he may be willing to ascend to that role. So that's pretty encouraging. I've heard the 1200 to 1500 number mentioned before. What, what is it about that? You, you know, as someone who, you know, probably needed some, something like that yourself when you were playing, your power kind of started to emerge a few years into right. your career. Is it pitch recognition? Is it familiarity? Is it confidence? Is it a mix of all those things? It's a mix of, of all of those things. It, you really uh, don't know for sure what your hitting mechanics should be, what you should be trying to do mechanically 
at the big league level uh, for a while because the it's so much different than the minor leagues. And the minor leagues from double A and triple A, you've got guys uh, that uh, have can have big league stuff, but they're not around the plate all the time. It's three ball three a lot of, a lot of the times, and and. And you just never develop a real uh, rhythm about uh, uh, about how your what your mechanics are going to be are going to be like. So guys might have big league stuff in the minor leagues, but not enough, you know, not enough of them. And you and you can do well just on sheer talent until you get to the big leagues. Once you get to the big leagues, it has to be talent, but also the other things that you mentioned. It's got to be uh, refining your mechanics so you can do it repeatedly day in day out it's pitch recognition it's understanding what what pitchers have what kind of stuff what their best thing is what your best uh, attribute is how they're going to try to get after you there's just a lot of a lot of stuff plus every day you're seeing a big league pitcher and you, there's no time to you know get get three or four hits against somebody about minor leagues that you know, that's never going to be to the big leagues. These guys come at you every day, and you get to learn psychologically about playing under the pressure of trying to perform and trying to figure it all out all at the same time. Good stuff from Roy. Does a great job on Bally Sports North. You can find that whole uh, discussion we had with uh, with Roy and uh, Megan and Lavelle on, on StarTribune.com. Before I get to Randy Johnson, uh, an interesting Wolf stat caught my eye the other day uh, on Twitter. Tweeted out by Todd Whitehead at Crumpled Jumper. Um, it was ostensibly about the ostensibly about the Nets um, and how many lineups they've used this season. So basically, it was a chart of the number of lineup combinations teams have used this year. And you can find all this information really on you know Basketball Reference. But the way they visualized it really brought it home for you know just how good teams really tend to have some continuity at the very least and and bad teams don't and the you know Utah which has you know been the story of the league this year the lineup that has played the most minutes has been on the has been on the court for 22% of all their possessions number 2 is Phoenix they have 23 actually actually Phoenix is number 1 i think this goes in order of record right now Phoenix 23% of all possessions have been played by the te- by the five man group that uh, that has played the most minutes. So you know you start to think about continuity. Their most used lineup, their most used lineup has played 23% of all possessions in Phoenix, 22% in Utah, and, yet, and it shows on the court, right? They have you know really good records. They they've been you know two of maybe the more surprising teams in the league, and then it extends out. You know, Utah, 85% of all their possessions have been played by their top 20 lineups. So you know five man combinations. It shows that you know they probably haven't a ton, haven't had a ton of injuries, but they've also settled in on rotations. They know who they're playing. Guys have gotten comfortable playing with each other. They know each other's tendencies. You know, you kind of go through the list, through the list, through the list. Wolves down here at the bottom, um, bottom for record and also bottom for continuity. Their most used lineup has played only four percent of the possessions this year. You think you're talking about? Phoenix and Utah, over 20%. Wolves, 4% of their possessions have been played by their most used lineup this season, and only 38% of their top 20 lineup. You know, the top 20 most used lineups have only played 38% of all possessions. So they're just like a hodgepodge of all these different lineup combinations. And we've seen it on the court, and we know what the impact is, right? There's There's been very little continuity this season for them. They're young to begin with. So, you know, not by way of excuse, but by way of explanation, you know, when you have a lot of injuries, when you don't exactly have an identity, when you change a coach in the middle of the season, too, and that coach wants to see different things play out, 
you are going to naturally struggle. Um, you know, it doesn't automatically mean you're going to struggle. I mean, the Nets have used a lot of different combinations. They've only had their most used, most used lineup on the court 8% of the time, only had their top 20 lineups out there 37% of the time. So you, if you have really, really talented players, it's possible to get away with it. Um, but most teams who are in the top of the standings also are near the top in that continuity. And those who are near the bottom are the opposite way. And the Timberwolves are in that boat where they're trying to figure out what combinations work and have played through a lot of injuries. So just a different way to think about their struggle this season and an interesting, you know, interesting way to think about it. I retweeted it on a Thursday. If you want to take a look at it, it's probably the easiest way to find it. But uh, so look at at Ramball. I just thought it was an interesting stat that shows you a little bit more of how they've struggled this season. I'm Nyla Jean Myers, Senior Assistant Sports Editor at the Star Tribune. Thank you for listening to Strip Sports Daily Delivery. This work is made possible by our Star Tribune subscribers. For unlimited access to the articles mentioned in this podcast and our coverage of Minnesota sports from pros to preps, go to startribune.com slash subscribe. Happy to have Randy Johnson on right now. Randy's out in Pittsburgh covering the Frozen Four. We had four teams that started the day Thursday, Randy, down to two, um, and we lost a couple of Minnesota teams because St. Cloud knocks off Mankato uh, Minnesota State, and then uh, UMass playing shorthanded um, is able to uh, to top Minnesota Duluth in overtime. A couple of really good games. Uh, maybe first off, just kind of walk me through what happened and, and your impression of uh, of everything that happened on on Thursday. Oh wow, it was it was a uh, quite the eventful day. Uh, it'll start off with uh, Saint Cloud State beating Minnesota State Mankato five uh, four. Uh, very very entertaining game. Uh, back and forth. Uh, Third period looks like uh, looks like Mankato's gonna gonna go and get into the final, and then uh, Say Cloud comes storming back and gets the uh, gets the winning goal in the final minute uh, on a marvelous tip in by uh, Nolan Walker on a shot uh, shot from the point. Um, just you know, you, you look at that thing on the replay; it just just gets a stick on it and it sneaks in and uh, just above uh, uh, Dryden McKay and and in, in the upper corner. Um, very, very, very good play. And it, it's, you have to feel for, for Minnesota state. I mean, all they've gone through and uh, this, this nice run they've had over the last four or five years with under coach Mike Hastings, but you know, St. Cloud state just keeps coming on. They're, you know, they're playing without their uh, one of their best uh, players in Easton Brodzinski who had a, uh, suffered a broken leg in the regional final. And uh, they just keep finding, finding ways to win. Those are two teams too, that, you know, obviously both Minnesota teams and, you know, both of them have, you know, had their had their share of heartbreak in the NCAA tournament. So one of them was obviously going to lose. But uh, you know, St. Cloud's got to be euphoric right now to to be in the in the final and you know to be one game away from from having a championship. Yeah, what, what, what was pretty interesting. Uh, you know, they were very happy they won, but still businesslike. Uh, Brett Larson has that team dialed in. Uh, you know, it, it's they're um, they're here to win. You know, that that's it. it they're not uh, they're not messing around. Second game goes to overtime. You know, it seems like it's kind of a tale of kind of two, almost two games in one where Minnesota Duluth controlled a lot of the play in regulation. Um, but, you know, they, they still, they, they can't decide a winner. Minnesota Duluth, as often happens, goes to overtime with, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, when it gets to uh, the postseason, that's, that's kind of been their MO. Um, but no magic this time. UMass is able to, uh, to escape with, with that win and really controlled play a lot of that overtime, right? Yeah, it, w- it was interesting because uh, Minnesota Duluth is a, is a team that 
they usually have no trouble playing playing tight games. Though they're they're um, this tournament, the NCAA tournament run they've had. Uh, basically, they've played six one goal games uh, out of nine on in their nine game NCAA winning streak that, that came to end last night. They you know, they get a lead, they lock it down and uh, and move on. And it, it assume, I was assuming it was going to be that way last night too. After they go into the third period of the lead, um, playing pretty well through a good chunk of the third period. Then um, momentum starts to, starts to shift. UMass gets the goal. And then um, overtime, uh, Minnesota Duluth just did not have anything to take. They, they, they were just exhausted. Uh, you could really tell, tell the ice was tilted in, in UMass's favor. Shots on goal ended up 13 to two in the overtime. And it, it, after a while there, it just seemed like it was a matter of time until they pop one in. Uh, Tanner Latterud of, of the Bulldogs had a breakaway where, and see if he got hauled down. He it was questionable, but I, I don't think they're we're gonna the refs were gonna call anything at that point. Um, it was interesting at the end of regulation they called the last two minutes they called one penalty on each team, which uh, <laughs> I, 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 they had swallowed their whistles for most of the night. So yeah, that's interesting. So disappointment, but I mean, obviously they've got two. <clears throat> they were the two-time defending champs. They they you know they make it to a Frozen Four again this year where you know maybe that wasn't the the huge expectation so uh, still a, a really good run for you know both minnesota duluth and you know and minnesota state when you consider you know where the season started where were we sure they were even going to get this season in and you know to have a, a three three minnesota teams in the frozen four was uh, was an accomplishment in and of itself yeah it was very very good i mean you know those teams that didn't advance yesterday they, they don't they have there's no shame there i mean they both played uh, very good games. It just, yeah, Duluth just ran out of, ran out of gas at the end. Uh, you know, they were going for some very interesting historic milestones. Uh, had they won, that would have been the first time a team has ever been in four consecutive national championship games. Wow. Had they, won, they would have been going for three in a row, which would have been the first time since Michigan won three. Michigan's been in uh, 1951 through 53 is the only team to win three in a row. Um, wow. you know, it's just, it just, uh, it's kind of interesting after, Afterward, uh, Coach Scott Sandel was saying, "Yeah, this is all this team knows. Uh, being in the Frozen Four, um, it's uh, I'm sure, sure it's it's all of a sudden. Oh, okay, the season's done now. Yeah, yeah, kind of that aspect of it too. You're right. Um, well, for two teams, it's not done. What? How? As after watching, you know, St. Cloud and UMass in their separate games Thursday, how do you kind of assess what kind of game we're going to see on Saturday? Well, St. Cloud, um, coached by Brett Larson, who's a Scott Sandlin protege, uh, you're, you're going to see a Minnesota Duluth-like game. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Mike Hastings, the Minnesota State coach, was saying that uh, you watch St. Cloud, it's just like uh, you're uh, switching a maroon jersey for a black one. Uh, they play so much like Duluth. Um, I think you're going to see see that type of approach. Uh, they're they're a relentless team. They you know they they keep pressing. They, they Keep going forward. They're they're um, you know nation's forecheck. Um, it's uh, I think yeah, it's going to be a very good game. Uh, UMass obviously showed showed a lot of resilience last night. They were playing without uh, their uh, usual starting goalie, uh, Philip Lindbergh, and their leading goal scorer and Carson Giesewitz. Um And it sounds like those two have a chance to to play. Uh, late last night, they uh, there was a release from UMass that. Uh, those those guys in a third their uh, backup goalie or third third string goal excuse me uh, will be um, coming to Pittsburgh. They have to go through more 
testing protocols for COVID, but there is a chance they'll be available on, on Saturday. That's interesting. It's a new, uh, it's a whole new piece of, of this. Cause obviously you're right. Those, those guys missed out with, well, out with COVID protocols, but yeah, in being able to withstand that and still get through and, and win, uh, you know, win their semifinal game. What was stylistically, how, how does, how does UMass play? That's a team that, you know, out of the four here, we were the least familiar with, obviously. Yeah. You know, they're, they're they have depth. That's what they really showed last night. Uh, I think they wore down, uh, Minnesota Duluth with their depth uh, in overtime. Uh, they're all roll four lines. They're they're opportunistic too. That that's the thing that they showed last night. Uh, uh, getting that third period goal to tie it. Uh, I don't think that many people in the arena, except some UMass fans, thought that was going to happen. It, it the way Duluth locks things down. Um, so St. Cloud State will be facing a team that's uh, you know their coach is all business. Uh, Greg Carvel for for UMass. Uh, he came here to win. Last thing for you, atmosphere-wise, out in Pittsburgh, do you sense a, a Minnesota, a good Minnesota contingency based on how many, you know, seventy-five percent of the teams being from Minnesota? Yeah, I mean, it was good considering right. the limitations on the twenty-five percent uh, attendance figure. But yeah, both all, all three teams, uh, their fans made their presence known during the game. It was, you know, the atmosphere. Yeah, it's not not like a full arena, but. They did did as much as they could. You know, there are still obviously times where you you, you don't hear the murmur of a crowd as much, but you, you hear the uh, the outburst when uh, something goes well. And if there's a call that they didn't agree with, that's for sure. Now nah, nobody hear, we never hear calls we don't like in hockey. Randy, come on! No, no, not hockey at all. fans are very polite. They just uh, no. sit on those hands. All right, well. Good stuff. Read Randy's stuff. Uh, Star Tribune and StarTribune.com. Good coverage of both of those games on uh, on Thursday night and that are now in Friday's paper and on StarTribune.com. I'm sure there'll be plenty of advance work for Saturday's paper as well and then coverage of, uh, of that championship game on Saturday night. Um, Randy, good stuff. Thanks for joining Daily Delivery and uh, hitting that uh, early morning alarm button. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was an early one, but late night. But hey, no, thanks for having me on, Mike. This is a fun time. All right. Take care, Randy. See ya. Good stuff from Randy. We will see if St. Cloud State can finish this off on Saturday. Would be a pretty cool story for the Huskies, for sure. When you hear that sound, of course, it's because I feel like a trade machine. And a lot of times when I do this, on the podcast, it's because there's a trade that I've kind of got cooked up, whether it was you know a month or two ago with Kirk Cousins, whether it was a Wolves deal before the trade deadline. This one's more of philosophical. NHL trade deadline is coming up on Monday. I don't know what the Wild are going to do. You know, the, the biggest need obviously still is, you know, frontline center. You know, those things are hard to come by. You don't want to just, you know, mortgage the future because you're having a better than expected season this year so you don't want to just go go all in on a rental I don't know if this is the team to go all in on a rental on I think they're a good team like I said on Thursday I think this is a team that showed particularly in that Wednesday win against Colorado particularly by winning with four power play goals that they could you know compete in the playoffs even beyond the first round even if they had to see Colorado again in that second round Um, but I don't know if this is the team to go all in on but I'm I'm a little curious here about the Zach Parisi situation because there's just been hints along the way that this isn't working out. You know, they almost traded him at the deadline last year. If you if you don't if you don't remember that, um, it almost got traded to the Islanders. Didn't happen. Fell through. Um, 
ever since then, you know, Dean Everson gets the, the permanent job. Zach Parisi's playing pretty, you know, heavy minutes to start this season, kind of in line with, with his normal, kind of his new career normal. Um, you know, if you look at his game logs on, uh, you know, on hockey reference, you know, start of the season, he's usually playing, you know, anywhere from 17 to 21 minutes, kind of right in line with where he had been. Then right in the middle of the season, he kind of hits a dip where all of a sudden now he's playing about 14, 15 minutes. You know, he had a little, there's, there's the COVID pause that, that he had, you know, everybody had to, everybody had to go through it. And he had a COVID pause recently too, but even before the COVID pause, you know, if you just look at his last seven games, um, you know, almost all of them have been in the 11, 12 minute range. He's had a couple of them at 10, 56. Those are barring injury games where I lo- went and looked back at his whole wild career. Those barring games where he had to leave early in the game with an injury, those are the lowest minute totals of his wild career. Um, you know, so he had he had the the game this year where he was a healthy scratch. He had the game where he was benched for part of the third period, just a coach's decision because maybe they didn't like where his game was at. He's frustrated. He said that the other day. He's frustrated with his role and trying to adapt to this new role of, you know, not getting as much ice time, not getting power play time. And I'm sure it's tough, you know, because, listen, Zach Parisi, you know, everybody loved the emergence of Kevin Fiala last season. Zach Parisi led the team in goals last year at 25. The year before that, Zach Parisi led the team in goals with 28. Like, this is a guy who has been productive even on the back half of his career and the back half of this contract. Um, you know, even as younger players have emerged. Now, this year, for whatever reason, not clicking, wasn't working out. He's, his role's been diminished. He's not really in that scoring role anymore. It's more of a role of, you know, defensive a little bit, you know, d- d- take up take up space, you know, neutralize the other team. Not so much a checking forward. He's, he still has an offensive game to him, but he's not getting the power play time. So here's the thing. His contract makes him very hard to trade, and his role makes him very hard to trade. I just wonder if both sides would be better off if this was resolved in some way where he was dealt before the deadline on Monday. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm not saying they even should do that because a player like Zach Parisi could be valuable again as the season goes along and once the playoffs get here. I'm just saying that I don't like where this is at right now, and if there was a way that you know you could do a change of scenery kind of trade where he would waive his no-trade clause and get that, uh, you know, get something to shake loose here. I know he's got the contract. I know that would be hard. You'd have to take money back from a different team and probably another contract that's long. I'm just saying a a change of scenery feels like it might be in order based on the whole way this season has played out. And maybe, just maybe, they could figure something out before Monday. Let's end with the cooler. Our Marcus Fuller reporting the other day that Richard Pitino, $0 buyout. That has been confirmed per the terms of his contract. I want to go back to Mark Coyle here, athletic director, and what a job he did on this. Because the way I imagine this played out, you know, Richard Pitino should have been, you know, would have been in line for a buyout. I know that when he took another job, and I'm sure he was incentivized to want to have another job. He's a young coach. You don't want to just sit there and not do anything. But here's the way I imagine this played out. Richard Pitino sitting there saying, okay, they, I don't think they want me anymore. Mark Coyle's made that clear to me. Mark Coyle's like, well, Here's the thing. I don't want to fire you any more than you want to have on your resume that you were fired. Why don't we find a way? Why don't you start looking for another job? When we when we make this separation, we won't say fired. We'll say, you know, parted ways, and you'll take this New Mexico job that, that you've got lined up, and we won't have to pay a buyout. You won't have to pay a, a clause that you left, and we'll just kind of, like, let it go like that. And, you know, so I don't... 
this happens a lot, you know, where, where a coach just kind of like, you know, switches jobs. But, you know, if we're being honest, the New Mexico job is not a promotion, right? This is not a job where you say, I want to go do this regardless of what's happening here. You know, he takes a pretty big pay cut to go from Minnesota to New Mexico, you know, probably more than, ha- more than half of what he was making, um, you know, re- a reduction in more than half of what he was making here. So just an all-time finesse, I guess, is what I would say by Mark Coyle, uh, to, to be able to craft that situation so you don't have to pay a buyout uh, to, to make it to, to make it work where you're able to bring in a new coach and you know kind of have it be clean or at least clean-seeming and, and, and bring in Ben Johnson and be able to have that happen. So all-timer there, and uh, I'm glad we finally have the details of that. That'll do it today. Thanks for joining me on the show all week. Have some good stuff coming up next week. Monday uh, should be a fun one. Lots of good stuff this weekend. Um, write a review, please. Um, leave a leave a leave a rating. Write a review on uh, on the Apple Podcast, things like that. Subscribe to StartYourBean.com, and we will see you on Monday. <laughs>